0: In Philippians 4, Paul writes to this community, not that I speak in regard to need, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Realizing that needs and wants fluctuate and that they are variable, and unpredictable. He doesn't anchor himself there. He says whatever happens, whether it's a need or a want in essence, I've learned something from the experience. And that's the how to. How to do what? In his emphasis, it's that whatever state I am to be content. I like that too. It it stops there whatever state I am. Not necessarily whatever situation I'm in, but whatever state I am to learn to be content and the reason that that's important is very often we can be in a state of mind that has nothing to do with where we're at even what we're doing it's a state of mind it's a state of heart it's a predicament that perhaps we don't even really know how it has come upon us you know we battle In our minds with an enemy that knows how to provoke us in our minds. Teases us, taunts us, questions God, asks us to doubt God. It seems a little bit, at times, unbelievable, but we are to believe that we have an enemy. And his intent is to pull us off focus. His intent is to make certain we are not content. Therefore, does the Lord permit circumstances and situations in which the very thing that we're in is the orchestrated and ordained moment in which God says, learn to be content. And it usually has to deal with great discomfort. When we were talking on Sunday about this issue of discontentment, and I brought you back to Numbers, and I think that was in the 11th chapter. And the emphasis on the people was they had intense cravings. And so I used illustratively, as you know, uh, Pastor Carl, who delivered these obviously divine boxes of donuts. One was a pie. One was just a filled box of donuts. And it said it all. Yum. And, as you know, I was filled with joy and curiosity allowance, of course, this is of God, it's a pastor for Pete's sake and And I just I laugh at it now because you know, to some degree, I was adequately content, but that stirred an intensity in me, an intense craving just. I'm just going to look. Just I, I want to see the inventory. And then, of course, I had to sample just a little bit of the inventory until it all unraveled, literally in a cinnamon roll that unraveled, and then repositioned itself inside my body because I had intense cravings. And I justified it all. The cinnamon, good for my blood pressure. The, the cream that they put on it, totally fat, good fat. Stevia, absolutely they use stevia in it, no sugar whatsoever. And, and it wasn't even, it was a gluten-free dough. I know that in my heart. And it was made out of like almond flour or walnut flour. Right? They make almond flour, right? They make walnut flour? Walnuts are good for you. So I'm confident that I tasted walnut flour. So it was all good. <laughs> I do have to stop on the illustration because it's just unnecessary to continue. intense cravings. And so what I was simply sharing in that too is that I can learn from that experience. I can do a rewind, and I can say, man, surprisingly, I'm vulnerable, and uh, I'm actually really good about excusing myself. And though I do believe with certainty I am not judged by God in it, when I take an opportunity to step back from it and judge myself, I'm going, huh, I'm not as strong as I made my boast. Because I was, I was boasting, you know. Keto forever. What, how can a man argue with beef and pork and fish and chicken all he wants any time he wants it? Err, man. And so that with espresso from Europe, I just go, that's it, that's my vegetable, coffee and beef, that's my, that's my main meal. And so, you know, no matter how you look at it, God's looking at us, and he also allows the situation to be presented. And so I've laughed at it, and some of you have been humored by it, but the bottom line is, did I learn in that episode being content? I'm still evaluating that. I I don't think that I did. Well, actually I did, because it was only the cinnamon roll that I wiped out. I didn't touch anything else. So I did. I did a good job there. But learning whatever state I am to be content, I need to ask myself, is it the situation that has a greater emphasis right now in my evaluation, or is it the state of mind and the state of heart and the state of spirit that I really need to say, in this, I will be content. Paul says he learned that. I know how to be abased. That's a good word too. Abased basically means a marring of who you are or what people say you are. An abasement is something contrary to what we want to have ourselves presented as. And so he's saying that I've learned even in that the unacceptability of me by many In fact, a determination by people that I've done no harm to, essentially, to critique me to a fault that really isn't there. I've learned to be abased. Jesus was abased. Paul, walking in those sandals, obviously many years later, he learned to basically accept the criticism of people and learning to do so in a manner in which his contentment grew as opposed to his resentment. So if I don't learn to be content, I will actually become very good to resent. And that has expressions which make me no better than the person that perhaps has caused that. And the reason that that's important is because that's going to be one of our next things coming up with regard to contentment and also what happens when resentment scooches that out of the way and replaces it with itself in which it becomes an uglier manifestation so Paul writes you know very soundly in all of these things everywhere and on all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry love being full but I tell you I've been miserable being full too I've 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 rocked that particular um, craving to where I I wouldn't go back to restaurants. It wasn't their fault. It was my fault because I learned to be full and I learned that there was a consequence in overindulging in my fullness. The contentment, much of that requires of me a willingness to sacrifice the urgency to satisfy I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound and everywhere and in all things I have learned, to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to notice this suffer need. See, there is a difference between suffering need and just needing something and feeling as though you're suffering. So that's a good word to us. Moving back into the Psalms, though, picking it up where we left off. which was being discontent anchored in numbers uh, for that i believe 11 4 and verse 34. we'll go right now to verse 16 when they envied moses in the camp and aaron the saint of the lord The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram, and fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Numbers 16 gives us a fuller insight. Back up and turn there. Numbers is a great book. So many things happened in that but in 16, verse 1, Korah, the son of Isar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Byram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown, And they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And notice this, verse 4, When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. So, I'm basically leaving off there. The chapter is very fascinating in terms of what this leads Moses to do. But one of the things that we see him doing is actually uh, the right thing. He's humbling himself. He's being faced off with those who are in leadership with him, who've drawn the attention and the hearts of the congregants. And really what this is, is an inciting of rebelliousness. We see that today, don't we? There are godly leaders who have been picked out by rebels. And if you would, social congregations are being incited to riot against them, saying, who are you to rule over us? But I will tell you, I'd rather be ruled over those who have godly humility, even if they have personality that could be disputable, But if their personality, if it takes the lesser of what may be a strong remnant of spirituality or they surround themselves in the counsel of the holy, I will take that person. Even if I receive a chafing and a head scratching in the process, I want who's on God's side. And personality has nothing to do with it. There were some who did not oblige the personality of Paul. He was one that would get in your face if he could connect with you in that manner and for the purpose of bringing truth to you. So that being said is that when you read this account, Moses is in fact showing, confirming that he was a man only in position by God's insistence. Moses had reluctance. God had insistence. God actually came to a point where he was not happy with Moses' excuses. And most of us have found in leadership that the excuse doesn't count when, in fact, God has appointed us to do something that has really nothing to do with our opinion. It has to do with obedience. But it is interesting, because in any type of position of leadership, it requires one more rung up the ladder. And usually, one more rung up the ladder means an additional responsibility that, for us, becomes the potential of attention in other people's lives. I've been down the food chain. I've been up the pinnacle of the food chain. I have been served as food in that food chain. (laughs) I'm the one that they come to for snacking on before they come to fill their bellies on me. In other words, there really isn't any position that God can assign a man or woman in which in that particular appointment there will not be a challenge. But what's being emphasized here in this psalm is jealousy, That's what's being emphasized. It's called envy, but envy and jealousy are synonymous. Envy might be on its maybe more specific definition, looking and pondering what somebody is doing. And jealousy might be equated as the arrogancy of its expression. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to put myself into a frame of mind in which that person will be framed by my anger, by my resentment, by my power, by me summoning the masses to come against them. So we have basically in our times right now a summoning of rebels against what we can say is a fashionable document known as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They want to rewire. They want to retool. They want to say, hey, Those guys had something, but we're a different generation. We can do things too, and we can do it better. We can redesign. We can redesign, and we can do so if we burn it down. What you get to in this section is that the incense, if you would, is going to be coming out, because God's going to use that. The incense actually was kindled to bring smoke, a wafting smoke, which was a spiritual smoke, by a coal that was embedded in it so it would ignite. Well, it always pictures in biblical language prayer. And we are a nation that needs to pray. But the incense of the culture is not of prayer. It's of fuel. Molotov cocktails with wicks being tossed and setting on fire things that had meaning and and functionality, constitutionality. Why have we allowed it? In this chapter that we just barely took a peek at, God will make a judgment. Judgment is important to make when lawlessness is abounding. The toleration of lawlessness does not lead to righteousness. It leads to greater lawlessness the binding up of those who have been free, set free, and liberated to follow guidelines and seemingly ordinances that have no weight as far as law. It becomes an opportunity in which there is a manipulation not towards God, but actually from and away from God. We see that too. There's indications in the Psalms of what it is we in fact are experiencing today. So evil is meant to be put in check lawfully. Law is intended to protect the civility of the public in which they are entrusted. And the casualties in which disobedience is a provocation for judgment by law, but the entanglements literally and the vulnerabilities that law has in separating the lawless from the innocent is tricky. And the enemy knows that. The enemy knows that if there's something he can incite, he will do so by taking an innocent person and throwing that person in, if you would, to the fires of Moloch to create, if you would, a different scenario, a different public opinion. So we have that. How could two sides in a country have such differing opinions to where they would war as they do? Well, we've seen it before, right? Our country has been in a civil war once. And there will be war to take that place on a level that's much greater in magnitude. But you know what the thing that we need to understand is that the Church has a place that we're to keep. You're keeping your place right now. Those who are looking in are keeping your place. We're to be in place and we're to be praying for the placement of people who are godly, love the Lord, who have a spirit of God within them and the sense of duty and obligation concerning them. They are to draw breath every day saying, God, how is it that I am to function in this position of leadership? And we're... The public is coming after me in a jealous rage where they are being incited on point of envy. Lord, would you sustain me? It's hard because what we want to do is just quit, right? Or at least be a moving target, you know. Run, zigzag. You'll make it eventually out of range. And we've tried that before, right? And all we find out is that we got really tired doing it, and they had a faster pace than we had, or a faster vehicle to get after us anyways. It really didn't do all that good. So there's a point where you just stand your ground and you say, I'm going to trust the Lord to do for me what I cannot do. But I can take a position with him and see what he wants to do. That's essentially what Moses did in this time in which rebellion was incited and coming against him. He said, this time tomorrow, God's going to do a new thing. And if he does this new thing, you'll know who is following God, and you'll know who isn't. Then you pick your sides very carefully. So there was casualty, but it wasn't Moses. There is going to be casualty. It won't be the church. Not if the church is not being casual, with the charge of being highly spiritual, ready for offense, ready for defense, ready and willing to listen to the Lord. We need to be together, you know, in this. And one of the most together things that we can do is to be praying. God, where the enemy seeks to lie and to maim and to kill, where deception is from his playbook, lying and manipulation. Lord, let me see, but most importantly, let me do. And it's not go grab your gun. If you did, great. Target shoot with it. But don't make somebody your target. We've already got enough of that. And that's I'm not advocating at all concerning, you know, I was an NRA, you know, member long, long time ago. And I actually enjoy hearing of the guys that are hunters and, they have an affection for weapons. Why? Because those weapons aren't a problem in their hands at all. Nor was the staff a problem in Moses' hands. But that staff was used significantly to determine an outcome that was very spiritually dynamic, and in particular, Pharaoh. And it was meant to have a very clear image of don't mess around with that man. He's mine. Don't touch my priesthood. They represent me, and they represent you before me. You need them. So be praying for congregations. I'm only one facet of the congregation. If I said, oh, please pray for me. No, pray for the congregation. Pray pray for yourself to continue doing as good as you are doing. See, when you guys are really transacting prayers before the Lord. You know, I get a look out I get a look out over faces that are charming and strong, very becoming, very encouraging, very happy, all of the gifts of the spirit just hiding within, you know, the the covering of skin and The depth of soul. I mean, that's one of the joys about pastoring is you can actually say, It's not me, it's the Lord. So whatever you get out of the word, great, that's the Lord doing that for you. And though I can't necessarily remember everybody that comes, when I do have an opportunity to see the people that have come and the Spirit of God in them, and the fellowship that breaks out in this, do you realize? This is your church that's not known for a fast break to the door. Even when I go long, I actually try to get over there just to, you know, sorry, I went too long. I'm sorry. But nobody even cares about that. Nobody cares about my feelings about feeling that I kept them beyond recess. Their lunch is getting cold. They're all back here going, hey, good to see you. And they stay and they stay And I'm going, I don't need to be by the door. I need a cot by the door where they can just pat me on the head and say, take your nap. (laughs) We're doing good, Pastor. You know that. You doing good? Good. See you next week. So jealousy, marked by envy, the passage that was given. I think it would do you good to read it. Fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked God judged them God will judge the wicked may we pray for those that they need not suffer that judgment that's the difficulty isn't it because we know deep down inside they deserve everything that's coming after them but that isn't God's heart he would actually desire that they turn to him repent of what they've done what they're doing how they're behaving that's the love of God I know it when I say it, and I believe it when I teach it. I'm just not confident I could pull it off right yet with some of the evil that has been manifested in a godless mentality. I need that to be worked out, but the hesitancy I have is that, Lord, can I do another lesson? I just that isn't the one I want really worked out right now. I'm just if i now that I've conducted this transaction of honesty, can we just You know, help me just to be a little bit more cheering for those who come with torches to burn my house. Now, help me just cheer that that tiki torch gets snuffed out before they make it to the porch, that they actually trip, fall on their face, and I happen to see it, and I can run out there with a glass of water and bandages. And they're incapacitated from doing what they wanted to do, but I'm empowered to do what I must do. I don't know. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior. That's 21. Who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen would stood Before him in the breach, this is Moses, heroic Moses, who just prior to that had rebels coming after him. And what does he do on another outbreak? And in this particular case, idolatry. And the emphasis probably is referring to when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law of God returning after 40 days with that awesome encounter with God bringing with him Joshua only to discover that there was 80s music playing in the camp. There was debauchery. There were over 80 people in the camp and many of them were worshiping that which they created by their own hands out of jewelry that they contributed from their own resources and treasuries. And so we have that in these days, too. Treasuries that ought to be to the Lord and for his work and from the gratitude of the people who have had provision, and they invest in idolatry, anything outside of God. I'm not saying the things that God gives us the privilege to enjoy. There's a difference between the privilege of enjoying something And that particular enjoyable privilege becomes the ruler of my life. Most of us that have lived long enough discover that with much, much is required. And with the responsibility, we eventually say, huh, that was fun for a season. But it hasn't controlled me and it shall not control me now. But usually the youth have the harder time with what inevitably can sink its clutches into their soul you want it? Get it now. Get it now. Get it now while it's hot. Get it now while you're young enough to enjoy it. And so a secular mindset can invade, but in this, it was a woeful act of constructing that which was not the living God, not their Savior. And it had everything to do with what they saw from the place that they were delivered. Therefore, One of the things that we learn is that the very place that we were delivered from has the potential to embed itself into our remembrance to where when it gets tough, when it gets hard, when we're left alone, it calls to us. No longer the voice of God is our interest. It's the voice of what we once left behind. And as a result, it becomes the idol that we at one time said, we would never have influenced us ever again. It influences us once again. Exodus 32 is where you would find that, the calf. And you'll understand that from this, it became as well a catalyst for a disposition that we had not yet seen in Moses towards the people that God loved. What did he do when he saw it? I'll just get right to the chase. He came down with these fresh, spanky, clean, finger written tablets that had the law by God's own hand. And he was so enraged at what they had done, he threw them down, ground them into powder, cast them into the waters, and he had them spoon fed into their mouths, drinking the bitterness of their abomination. Forty days, no small time to spend with God. And it must have been both artistry and deep spirituality. He must have been in a place where food, there was no no craving for him. (laughs) He was getting it all from God, sustained in the presence of the Lord. And probably unlike any, even the Lord, whom we know was in a fasting in the wilderness, but very likely, as we read the scriptures, able to drink water, Moses had neither; he was in an absolute fast, so he was in a place of deep contentment and pride in the Lord, not of himself. But then the switch happened when all of a sudden he saw, contrasting to the place that he was at, such blatant disregard for God and the excuse of men, in particular even his brother i don't i listen, they just started throwing their jingle jingle bling at me. I was trying to get rid of it, so I just threw it into the fire. And then out came this golden calf. Well, we know that that was not true. It's what he said. It was beaten into the image that for them represented a theology that they had left behind. And the interesting thing is, is really, where would they have learned it since Goshen was outside of the primary influence of the city? Here's how they learned it. They went into the city. They were protected from the city in the land of Goshen. It was the prime real estate for a godly people. They were doing what it is they were good at doing, shepherding and tending and cutting, harvesting. But somehow, someway, they got into the marketplace of ideas, secular reasoning, circular philosophy. And as a result, something stuck. So, when they got into pickle because Moses wasn't there, they decided to do their own canning. And that's the deal. Idolatry. Unbelief, discontentment, jealousy, idolatry. There were wondrous works in the land of Him, awesome things by the Red Sea. We saw the Red Sea. It was awesome to see the Red Sea, based on the history of what we know of it. And it was there in which there were wondrous, awesome things done by that sea. What was it? It was where they were placed in a position in which no alternative existed except to trust in God, and that was to cross that sea. How do we do this? You know who got the blame. Moses did it again. He's continuing to lead us down these one-way paths that have a stop sign and no way to get out of it. Well, it's because God permitted him to have no answer but himself. And he had to boldly speak what perhaps no other person had courage to do. And that's leadership. You speak what no other person perhaps in that time in that moment can say or is willing to do. I appreciate people like that. I'm somewhat stoic, somewhat of an internal philosopher. I, I say some of the greatest things in the quietness of my heart. I've got speeches that would rival Lincoln's. I know that. I mean, they are like oracles. But when it comes time to get it out for the purpose of what I was reciting it for, nothing. Nothing. It's like, give me my blankie and my little nummy and I'm going to curl up over there. And this is what I do, eloquent in my mind, a statesman unlike any other. Oh, Grecian, you want to talk about it. But when it comes time to let that break forth, I'm broken. Moses wasn't. However, he was human. And the provocation that we see now we won't be able to finish all of this and there's a reason for that as well. It's fairly substantial and I really believe that these engagements that we have are intended to be refreshing. So let's continue on. For me, I had to flip the page. It says this, that in the verse we just left, the wondrous works in the land of him, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had Moses not if you would, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach, meaning that there was a delineation, a line in which the people said, you know, basically, we don't care about the Lord, and we don't care about you. And God was ready to judge the breaches that God was ready to take A inventory of what he had done. He said, I'm going to start fresh with you, Moses. These guys have basically done the last act of rebellion against me and thwarting you. And when it says that he stood in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. It was Moses saying, don't do it right now. Lord, you have a reputation that's stellar. You do this. The nations will hear that. You're a big guy, but not that big. You can't bring those guys out and accomplish what it is. We said you were going to do because you told us you were going to do it. Don't, don't do it, and that's that's pretty awesome because God was basically offering him a chance to start fresh. You know, you and Zipporah can start a family again. You can expand. I'll make it work. Aaron will make it work. We'll start small. We'll get big in time. It's gonna be. It's gonna make it so much easier for you, Moses. Rather than three million, you get three families that you just get to take care of and watch them grow. He said, don't do it. Then they despised the pleasant land, it says, and they did not believe his word, but complained in their tents. And it says, and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. These are all interlinked right now, these verses. But one way that you could define this as the drawing back of a people. And we, as well, have the vulnerability of drawing back because of how we see the succession of what has happened thus far. And that is the unbelief, the discontentment, the jealousy, the idolatry, and now the drawing back. When those things become component parts of a man or a woman's life, a change that they've chosen to walk in, then this would be indicative of the drawing back. It's no longer drawing a line saying, cross over to the Lord's side. It really is stepping back, stepping away. And so this leads ultimately to this other word that we are going to be more acquainted with in these latter days. When people draw back, then they essentially are just moments away from retracting their commitment to the Lord, and it's known as apostasy. It says they joined themselves to pure and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. And there's a name in there that's very interesting, but it's actually an individual who in a time in which apostasy had rooted itself in at least two individuals because of what we do see here, which is the drawing back, the crime committed was basically an impropriety, a sexual impropriety that took place uh, by the tabernacle or within the tenting of the tent of meeting. And this individual that's being cited here, which is Phineas, said that's not going to take place. And so he executed those individuals for their immorality. Well, immorality right now is somewhat rampant and somewhat acceptable and now somewhat lawful because we've said it's okay. We've defined that at the highest court in the land. That was a decision written by an opinion by Kennedy. He was wrong, by the way. Perhaps a nice guy, I wouldn't doubt that, but his adjudication in that decision with regarding morality and defining marriage as all-inclusive, he was wrong. You were wrong if he's listening. because that wasn't his territory. And in essence, because of that, what does it begin to do? It begins to pull and tug on people's hearts. They become secularly persuaded and highly spiritually submitted. The drawing back leads to apostasy. Apostasy means abandonment of God or a renunciation of your belief in Jesus. And we have had some high-profile figures of good men, good women, who have renunciated their faith, and they have gone on record saying, we abandoned with conviction where it was we were at, how we led people astray. They're apologizing for the songs that they writ- wrote, the devotionals that they taught, the books that they authored, and they're going on public airwaves to do it. Why? If you must walk away, then walk away. Why contribute to an overt act of apostasy When you can just walk away and at least give the opportunity of your heart to be resettled. For you to take an opportunity to hear the still small voice of God once again. Maybe you've gotten so busy. And maybe you in your busyness have forsaken the Lord in which you made yourself vulnerable. But you do not have to take that and become apostate. So the church will become apostate. It will seemingly have the structure and functionality of a church, but it will be apostate in terms of what it teaches because false doctrine moves in, accommodating secularism and humanism invades, and everybody starts doing what it is they want to do as opposed to what God's will is and how it ought to be done. That's why on Sundays one of the most important things we do is have time for prayer and we take communion. We take communion frequently because we're really saying, Lord, I forgot most of everything last week. I'm pretty sure I messed up. But in this, I'm remembering you. And in this, I'm asking for my memory to be jogged and to have an opportunity to do better than I did. Or Lord, I had a stellar two, three weeks, one month. I mean, I was walking on clouds of holiness. But then the rain cloud came and I fell through those little molecular water vapors of pride and I got doused and drowned and I'm not doing that. Well, Lord, I remember you, I remember you. And then the deluge right now that I basically welcomed in my haughtiness of spirituality, may they be tears of repentance. So apostasy will be the mark of not the true church, the false church, but it starts somewhere. Where does it start? The points that we just mentioned and the compromises that we have made note of. And so guess what? On Sundays, there may be people that do not understand the ways of God. And guess what we're not doing We're not checking ID badges and we're not checking to see if they've memorized the Ten Commandments. What we do is we show them what vulnerable people who have wholesome understanding of God and revere God do. We come with all the junk. We bring it in through that threshold and we lay it at the altar. We open the word of God and we do not dismiss the truth that is being spoken no matter how uncomfortable it may mean because within the scriptures, even in its discomfort, in the revealing of truth, and in the revealing of humanity, guess what we're getting? We're getting a bath. We get a bath. And everybody knows that that's a very refreshing... The only time a bath is harder for me is when there's no hot water. i got to admit, that's a tougher one for me. But depending on the state that I was in before I entered into the bath, I know it's going to be good even if it's uncomfortable. And entering into that shower on my terms as opposed to being thrown into an icy cold river by Christy's terms, it's better for me that I just make the choice. If I don't make the choice, she will. And she's like a crocodile. She she puts me in those arm jaws and I get taken to where I do not want to go. And I just have to realize the Lord saved me because my heart didn't stop. Drawing back, 28 through 31, apostasy. In 32, they angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. The ill that it went for Moses is that he's judged for an anger that was an outburst. He, in this case, was finding himself pressed to the point Of what inevitably became a consequence to him. That can be found in the book of Numbers in chapter 20. And because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Let me go over there to Numbers 20 really quickly. All of these progressions happening literally documented in these texts. And so when the children of Israel, verse 1, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron once again. right, And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up as the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. That's an important point to make, that when there's contention and rebelliousness. The believer, the Christian, the one who's following the Lord, has the heart for God and for the church. We fall on our faces. Oh, we may think, I wish they would fall off the edge of the earth. Well, there's no edge for them to fall off. That's been proven, right? There's just a horizon that they disappear over. But sooner or later, they'll come back over the horizon. These men fall on their faces. And they do so to be in the presence of the Lord. It's what we, as a church, as a people of God, need to be doing regularly, and in particular in this latter month right now. Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly, falling on their faces. The glory of the Lord appeared to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother, Aaron gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. So you know where this is going. This would be what's called the provocation. You can finish off the story, but that was the command that God had given to them, speak to the rock, and it will give them water. Moses was so angered that this had repeated itself once again as an outburst of rebellion, of lawlessness, of disorder, of irreverence, that rather than speak to the rock, he smote it. He had already done that. And as you understand in spiritual pictures, the striking of the rock was a representation of the smiting that would be upon the Lord's back for healing. And the speaking of the rock was that when the Lord was satisfied, if you would, with the sacrifice, the offering of his son, we then have the privilege of simply talking to the Lord. We don't have to do any other thing. He was beaten once for all. He now is able to be spoken to once for all or twice for you or as many times as you frequent prayer, as many times as you take a walk, as many times as you drive, He is frequented now with simply communication. And so you know that that account basically is where the discipline of Moses is that the very thing that he had the heart to do and to live for in what would be 120 years, he will be subject by law. The very lawgiver will be subject to the penalty of law which is death, and he would not be able to cross over into the land that he lived for to be able to invite and lead his people into. And there's a spiritual reason for that as well, because the law cannot bring you into the promised land. So in some sense you know he was an illustration man lord you led me and all i am is an illustration of the law what it cannot do but i wanted liberty that's not for you you'll have liberty when when your life is consummated in your death and you'll get to make an appearance with the very one whom you have served so faithfully and he will make an appearance he will make an appearance in a promised land, but most importantly, with the promised Savior on a mount of transfiguration in which he will be joined by another, Elijah. And it was witnessed. He didn't really lose a thing. He didn't even have to have a family to bury him. The Lord gave him a custom funeral. Provocation is where that is emphasized in Psalm 106. We're going to close off there. And we'll finish this off on the next round.